traveling friends out there it's so good to have you back and here we are in August I can't believe where the year's going to but I hope you're enjoying your summer have you been on the road yet have you been to any wonderful places you know that I'd love to hear and um, you're always welcome to post pictures on my social media channels but today we're actually revisiting Kenilworth if you recall in July, I went to Kenilworth and I explored the castle with Gus Nasser, who is the volunteer coordinator there at Kenilworth. And we toured around the castle buildings, particularly trying to recreate the castle as it was for Elizabeth I's historic visit in 1575. But what we didn't quite have chance to do is go and have a look at the gardens. And so in this episode, we revisit Kenilworth and this time I'm talking to Matt Bulford from English Heritage. And he is going to tell us the fascinating story of how the world's finest recreated Elizabethan garden came into being. They're celebrating a 10 year anniversary of the garden there at Kenilworth this year. So it's the perfect time for us to hear that really interesting tale. Of course, as ever, we will visit also the TTD news desk for August. And today we have another very special event. This time, Queen Anne Boleyn is taking to her chambers in anticipation of the birth of her son. Well, I'll say no more about that. And then finally, we also revisit um, a discussion with an old friend. Again, Professor Sue Doran, who spoke to us in an earlier podcast about the checkers ring, is now in discussion with me about a pair of portraits which historians believe was commissioned, were commissioned by Dudley to commemorate or to honour the visit of Elizabeth I in 1575. And with that, we'll round off our exploration of the mighty Kenilworth Castle. And as I say, that most, most historic visit, which occurred in July of 1575, the aforementioned year. But before we go over and talk to Matt, I thought we'd get in the mood by listening to a piece of music which rather aptly, as you will see shortly, is called Besides a Fountain. And this is a gorgeous four-part madrigal by Thomas Morley, who was, of course, a famous Elizabethan composer. So on that note, let's sit back, relax, and let that beautiful Elizabethan music just wash over us.
Lords of Fountain by John Downland. And now we're going to head straight over to Kenilworth Castle and we're going to be in discussion with Matt Bulford from English Heritage who's going to tell us all about the Elizabethan garden there. There's a very interesting story to tell about this garden here at Kenilworth which was recreated by English Heritage some 10 years ago. So English Heritage and Kenilworth are celebrating the 10 year anniversary of the garden. And to tell us all about the fascinating story of how that came about, I'm here now with Matt, Matt Bulford from English Heritage. Hello, Matt, welcome Hello. to the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Before we get into talking about the garden, mm -hmm. maybe you could just introduce yourself and tell folk what you do with English Heritage. Yes, so my name's Matt Bulford. I'm the head of historic properties for the West Midlands. Uh, I look after, I have the privilege of looking after 13 beautiful historic sites throughout the West Midlands area. Uh, main kind of features of my role, I suppose, are to make sure that people are having a fantastic time when they're visiting our sites. So we're really wanting to make sure that we're bringing history to life for our visitors. Okay, and this is certainly the case with the garden. And yes. You've brought me to a pair of rather magnificent looking gates mm -hmm. and I think there's a story there so maybe we should start with that story and how that leads us into understanding more about how this recreated garden came about. Absolutely yes of course. So we've got a fine set of oak gates here. Now these gates are open to us at the moment. Um, the story goes that um, Elizabeth visited the, the site in 1575 and nobody was really allowed in the garden. This was a privy garden that was for Elizabeth to enjoy on her own or with Dudley or to invite in her own you know, special guests. So it's a, a great privy garden. Nobody else was allowed in. So there was a lot of kind of uh, uh, people sort of suspicious of what's going on inside and people eager to kind of get in and see what's happening. So this chap who worked at the castle at the time, his name was Robert Langham. He's a courtier of Robert Dudley's. He arranges that whilst Elizabeth and Dudley are out hunting or they're hawking or they're riding through the deer park, beyond Kenilworth. He's uh, friends with the gardener, so he's arranged that these gates are left open. So these are the gardener's gates. He can then sneak inside and have a look at the garden. Now, Robert sneaks into the garden. He writes out in great detail a lot of information about the garden, the, the, the features within. Uh, he writes a letter to his friend who lives in London. He writes a 30-page letter that is a full account of the 19-day visit in 1575. Eight pages of that describe the garden. Do they really? So wow. <laughs> thanks to these gates that we've recreated very recently uh, being left open as they are for us today, Robert so Langham was able to sneak into this private garden and see the garden built for Elizabeth by Dudley. So it's very inviting and I think we should do just that and take a walk yes. inside the garden and have a, have a look. So we're walking through these lovely oak gates and then the vista of the garden, we've got the pathway in front of us, we've got the ruins of the old um, Norman Keep haven't mm -hmm. we on the left and then over to the right we've got the garden uh, which is um summertime so it's 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 in fair full bloom isn't it at the moment absolutely right yes so if we're walking in the footsteps now of robert langham we're sneaking into the garden and uh, a, a previous role that robert langham had actually was to uh, measure out different lengths of cloths and things he would be able to cast his eye at something and give us a great dimension uh, very accurate so he describes the garden in great detail so he explains that as we're looking at today there are four quarters mm. so we have these fenced areas and that there are beds within so he explains about the raised beds and that they're in lovely intricate patterns he even describes the height of the beds he explains what we can see now which is four obelisks in each of those quarters and a beautiful white fountain with an aviary beyond and birds within singing Yes. So uh, he's, he's given us these, these great pieces of information and 
English Heritage were able to take the information given from the letter, as well as some archaeological excavation work that was done here, and piece those together to be able to recreate the garden as authentically as possible. That's wonderful. And of course, as you, you pointed out, the features that really cast, catch your eye are the obelisk, and the fountain and the great Avery. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the story because I think there's some interesting facts. Yeah, should we go and take a look? Yeah, let's, please, let's take a look, yeah. So they're quite, these obelisks are, are well, how high are they, would you say, Matt? See, now, this is the problem. I'm not Robert Langham. I can't cast my eye at something <laughs> and give a, an accurate dimension. But if we were saying, well, I'm, I'm five foot eight, so probably two and a half times my height, yeah. I'd say, yeah. Yeah. So they're quite striking, aren't they? And they look like they're made out of marble. And is that the they're case? They're not. <laughs> exactly right. So if we get a little bit closer, mm. these are supposed to be uh, a porphyry, which is a pink kind of marble. And you'll notice a couple of little flicks of paint there if you come closer. And if you give that a tap, if you want to... Yeah. <laughs> yes. These are made of wood. Okay, yes. So these are oak and they've been painted to look like It's very clever, porphyry. isn't it? Because it really does look from a distance. It really does look like that. So, I mean, obviously, Robert Dudley spent lavishly on Elizabeth, and, and, and I suppose to make these out of wood must have been a cheaper version. What do you think the story was there? We, we can only speculate as to <laughs> yeah. why this happened. It could be that Dudley was running out of money. He might have been running out of time to get things finished uh, before Elizabeth comes to visit. We know that across the whole site and the 1575 visit that Elizabeth did in 19 days here, he spent the modern-day equivalent of £21 million remodelling the site, creating the garden on this ground festive of sort of fireworks and feasting and all of the plays and the music and the dancing and things like that. So it is possible that he was just maybe trying to cut a few corners, shall yeah. we say? Um, but as I say, it could be that he's running out of time. He wants to get this stuff finished. So finds an easier way of doing this is to make, make it from wood. And English Heritage, as I say, were able to do uh, a couple of years' worth of archaeological excavations throughout the whole of the site before the garden was recreated. Now, Robert Langan describes the fountain. We'll head over in a second mm. and have a look at that. Mm. He describes the fountain and says that there was an octagonal fountain white marble and that it was eight-sided and that these lovely um, obelisks were in all the quarters. The archaeology demonstrates that there's foundations below the fountain. But when we come to look at where the obelisk would have been sited, there's no archaeology to suggest any foundations that would take something of this weight. Right. So we deduce from that that they had to be made of wood. Right. So these were made of wood and they're painted. There's probably six or seven different coats of paint. So they uh, put their primer on, they go silver at one point and you can see the finishes. They're all done with a sponge. So there's different colors and, and layers. Yeah, exactly, to give you that speckled effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope Elizabeth didn't Didn't the... spot it. <laughs> she walked by. <laughs> So we're now right in the heart, the centre of the garden, and we're standing in front of this really uh, impressive fountain. Perhaps, Matt, you want to describe to us what we're looking at? Yes, of course. So we've got a white basin here, which is octagonal. We've got eight sides here showing different scenes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. We know that this was a, a favoured book and a set of stories that, that Elizabeth I really enjoyed. So we then have in the centre uh, a grand statue. which shows two men stood on there, uh, they're draped in a, a sort of a loincloth, uh, mm -hmm. supposed to keep their modesty. Uh, and we have a, a large globe figure on top, 
uh, of this with a ragged staff. Now the ragged staff is the, the sigil from the Earl of Warwick and it's one that Robert Dudley is using um, for the Dudley family. So the symbolism here is Robert Dudley and his brother Ambrose, uh, the two men, holding up the world and the weight of the world on their shoulders yeah. with the ragged staff on top as well. So yeah. a little bit of symbolism there. And, and, and this was actually described by Robert Langham. He, yes. he made a detailed description of Absolutely. what he saw of the fountain. So he describes the eight sides, the white Carrera marble. He explains it's over his metamorphoses and he depicts five of the scenes of the eight. So English Heritage has to then decide on three more, but we've picked the same ones from the same series of poems. Right. So we know um, yeah. five out of the eight. Uh, we also know that it's white marble. Yes. And the archaeology also supports the account that Robert Langham has put. So we found when we're doing the archaeological excavations, three little flecks of white marble, and they're able ah. to, to match this back to white Carrera marble from Tuscany. Really? English Heritage returns to the same quarry and really? finds two large pieces of marble to carve the bowl and the statue itself. That's so this is the level of, of detail yeah. and yeah. commitment that, that English Heritage went to in 2009 to create as, as authentic as really we could the garden. So that's lovely. So um, it's a real sensory garden, isn't it? Because you've got the beautiful views, you've got the scent of the flowers. I, I hope our listeners can hear the tinkling of the fountain. But there's also... Um, the aviary that mm -hmm. you've recreated here, um, and which we're walking towards now, so um, this is in the far side of the garden. It's really, it's a two-storey structure. It's quite substantial, isn't it? It is, yes. So we're walking now with our back to the fountain. We're heading towards the aviary, and we're greeted with this large pink building, as you say, two storeys. There's um, decoration throughout, so you can see along the top, there are what kind of look like painted kind of jewels. Now, there would have been giant pieces of maybe colored glass, which oh, obviously glass is very expensive in those days. Um, so Langham explains that it's bejeweled. We have uh, lettering here, RL, so Robert Dudley is, is the Earl of Leicester. Yes. So this is Robert of Leicester. And then you can see these, these flowers that we've got here. So we've got the red background with the white flowers. And this is actually the Sankfoil, which is the, uh, the, the emblem of Robert Dudley, his, his own family emblem. So, and then we have our, our lovely birds within. So let's see if we can hear some. So they're mainly canaries in here. I think I, I was actually chatting to Gus about this. They are, they're mainly canaries, aren't they? The That's little right. yellow birds just flitting around from the trees that are inside this That's aviary. right, canaries and pheasants. And there would have been quail and other things here as well. Um, and actually in the fountain, there would have been fish as well. We don't have that oh, today because really? we don't think necessarily that's the yeah. best place to put them. But yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly there would have been lots of, lots of fish around and birds here singing, quail and canaries, and pheasants. I presume and they consumed those things as well as enjoyed them yes. sort of aesthetically. But yeah, as you say, it was a sensory garden, so it was all about the sights, the sounds, the smells. So we've got the sound from the fountain, we've got you know, the birds singing in the aviary. And as I say, Robert Langham was able to give very good measurements and detail. He wrote eight pages, as I mentioned earlier, about this, this beautiful garden. He doesn't tell us what plants are here. He doesn't know so much about plants. Uh, so he's able to explain that there's sweet smells and that you know, we were able to deduce from this and what is uh, fashionable at the time that this is uh, a sensory garden taking influences from Italy and from France. So we also know, again, you know, the heights of the beds. Mm. He doesn't explain the patterns. I see. So again, we have to look to uh, similar period gardens, what was fashionable at the time. Um, and the idea of this garden is that you would view it from above. So there's the terrace on one side, and obviously Elizabeth herself would come out from the castle, stand up on the terrace and be able to look down and appreciate these geometrical patterns that are here. So mm. um, as much as possible, we try to create 
um, based on what Langham has said, but there are gaps where we have to, to fill in those blanks, I suppose. So we've gone and looked at uh, other influences and taken the oldest sort of species and varieties of plants that we can find. So dotted around, you might find wild strawberries and they look very small and people think that maybe they're still growing, but they have ripened up and gone red. They're just a very, very old variety. Yeah, it's wonderful. So we talked right at the top that this is the 10th year anniversary this mm -hmm. garden's been here for 10 years now what have you been doing to celebrate or you know what's going on here at the castle that people might want to enjoy so we've done a fair piece of work actually we've we've done a lot of replanting and brought new species of plants or newer newer varieties back in should we say um, so a full replant we've done some some maintenance and relayed the gravel pathways and painting and things like that just to bring it back to the standard that we wanted it to be um, which is very important, obviously, and other things that we've done, we've done a few light touches. So we've got a garden uh, children's trail that's being developed, and we've also put in um, some garden games as well. So we've created a bowling green, which, which you saw when we were the other side of the gate. So thank you so much, Matt, for showing us around the garden today and explaining this fascinating story. But for people who may be wanting to plan a visit, maybe even over the next 12 months, what, what might they look forward to? Okay, so there's always exciting things happening here at site. We have guided tours taking place every single day, taking you around the grounds, maybe taking you around the garden as well. Um, we have got different events that take place throughout the year. So our flagship event is uh, different medieval jousting, Elizabethan pageants, big sorts of blockbuster events and lots of smaller things as well. So if you come during the summer holidays, we'll be doing great hands-on history events, storytelling and object handling and things like that. Or you can come and you know, admire the beautiful garden, walk around at your leisure. Uh, we have audio guides, should you wish to take those and have a wander around. Um, and other little bits and pieces like the bowling green, as I've just explained, you know, you can have a go at maybe trying, trying your hand at Tudor bowling. Mm -hmm. uh, we also do costume volunteer talks as well. So we actually do dressing the queen a couple of times a week. So you can come and see Elizabeth I and her ladies in waiting, see her getting ready for addressing her court. Oh, that sounds marvellous. So there's tons of stuff. Whether, whether you're a part of a family or whether you're you know, just visiting yourself or with a friend, there's loads of different things for people yeah, to absolutely, get involved with. Yes. So, so excellent. Lots of fun for all ages. Highly recommend it. So again, thank you so much, Matt, for talking to us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Well, that concludes our exploration of Kenilworth Castle, both the castle and the gardens. And I just want to say a massive thank you to the staff at Kenilworth who were so incredibly welcoming and helpful in putting together this podcast. Now it's time to head on over to the TTG News Desk, where we are hurtling back in time to 1533 and visiting Greenwich Palace, where Queen Anne Boleyn is about to take to her chambers. So without further ado, let's head over to Robert Cole, our newsreader, and hear exactly what is breaking. Welcome to the August O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. Anne Boleyn takes to her chambers at Greenwich Palace. Anne of Cleves is buried in Westminster Abbey. Catherine Parr, the Queen Dowager, gives birth to a daughter at Sudley Castle. And a service of thanksgiving is conducted at St Paul's to celebrate the victory of the Spanish Armada. Good day. 
And now to our top story. Anne Boleyn, the King's most beloved wife, is expected to take to her chambers at Greenwich Palace later today. In this elaborate ritual, the details of which were originally set out by the King's grandmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the Queen is required to retire from the wider court to her private chambers, there to await the birth of her child. To find out what has been going on at Greenwich today, and what the Queen can expect during this period of purdah, we can go over to the palace where our roving reporter, Catherine Simmons, has gained entry to this exclusive event. Catherine, what can you tell us about what has been happening at the palace today? Yes, hello Robert. I am here in the Queen's Great Chamber at Greenwich Palace. This grand and elaborate room is part of the Queen's side here at the palace, and it is normally filled with courtiers waiting to petition the Queen. Today, as you can hear, the room is crowded as usual, although people are gathered for a very different reason, and that is to wish the Queen well as she takes to her chambers. However, the day began a couple of hours ago with mass being heard in the Chapel Royal, with the King and his heavily pregnant wife in attendance. Prayers were said for the safe delivery for both mother and child. Of course, childbirth is an extremely perilous undertaking, with current statistics suggesting that around 1 in 40 women can expect to die during childbirth. So the outcome of this pregnancy is by no means certain. So what is happening right now? The Queen is being attended by her ladies and together with the King are enjoying some wine and spices here in the Great Chamber. Anne looks resplendent, dressed in cloth of gold, the laces of which have been let out to accommodate her greatly swollen belly. It is expected that Anne's Lord Chamberlain will shortly say a few words to wish the Queen Godspeed and a safe delivery before she finally withdraws from the court with her ladies in attendance. And will that be the last time that His Majesty sees the Queen until after the delivery? Yes, indeed. Beyond the doors that lead to the Queen's privy rooms, no men are allowed. The rooms have been specially prepared, hung with tapestries on the walls, over the windows and covering the ceiling. All draughts, including keyholes, have been blocked up. As we all know, there is fear that such openings may let in the devil and harm the baby. While fires are lit to protect against chills, the Queen is allowed one window that may be left slightly ajar should it please Her Grace to take some air. So it is going to be a very closeted and isolated existence beyond those doors. And although, as a Tudor Queen, Her Grace is expected to endure the next six weeks with patience, for someone like Anne Boleyn, who is known for her love of the outdoors, it surely will be a testing time as everyone anxiously awaits the outcome of this pregnancy. Oh yes, and is the baby widely expected to be a boy? Well. Learned men and astronomers who predict this kind of thing have all said so. I have to say, though, that despite all the celebrations and the smiles, it is not hard to detect a note of tension in the air. For as you well know, Robert, the King has long awaited a son and legitimate heir. There is a lot riding on this outcome of this pregnancy, and although the Queen has many well-wishers, there are quite a few who are praying that she delivers a girl or indeed, 
that the mother and baby come to some harm during childbirth. I see. And when are we expecting to hear news of the royal birth, should all go to plan? It is difficult to say, but with a six-week time frame, as would be the usual period applied prior to the expected birth, we are realistically looking at some point in the middle of September. Well, thank you for that, Catherine. We shall all pray for a safe delivery for the Queen and for a healthy son for His Majesty. So that concludes the August o'clock news. All that remains is for me to say that the TTG News Desk will return again in September. But for now, it's back to the 21st century. Golly, you can only imagine just how tense Anne Boleyn must have felt. Excited, yes, but the unbelievable pressure. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't step into her shoes for the world. Anyway, let's leave the 16th century behind us just for a moment because I'm now going to be in conversation once more with Professor Susan Doran, who is Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Oxford. Now, if you recall, in an earlier episode of the Tudor Travel Show, I was interviewing Sue about the Checkers Ring. But this time, we are in conversation talking about a very special pair of portraits which it seems were commissioned by Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, to honour and commemorate Elizabeth's visit to Kenilworth, his home in Warwickshire in 1575. However, these weren't just any old paintings. No, there was a certain meaning behind them and we're going to go over right now and talk to Professor Doran when she can tell us all about them. Welcome back, Sue, to um, our second chat here on the Tudor Travel Show. Good to talk to you. But we're here talking about a different topic. And um, earlier on in this show, um, I was at Kenilworth Castle exploring the castle and particularly exploring the castle in relation to the visit of Elizabeth I in 1575 and, and looking at all the different lengths that Robert Dudley went to to honour and perhaps some might say woo the Queen. Um, <laughs> and um, I know that when we were talking a little while ago, you brought to my attention an interesting pair of portraits which had been painted during that very same year. And, and I thought it might be fascinating to hear more about those portraits and, and how, if at all, they are linked to that visit. So with that in mind, um, and again, I'll just say for those people listening, um, I will do an associated blog post with the portraits posted so that you can have a look at the portraits and listen to the podcast at the same time, should you wish. But going back to our conversation, I was wondering if maybe, Sue, we could start with a description of the paintings. Certainly. Now, most of what I'm going to tell you today is, is based on the work of Elizabeth Goldring, who's written both an article and a book that really makes clear, at least convinces me, that these two pairs of portraits were commissioned by Leicester in 1575 and positioned in a way that either showed him to be the clear favourite of Elizabeth, or as you quite rightly say, the suitor of Elizabeth, because they could be seen 
almost as marriage portraits. So the first pair of portraits um, don't now appear as a pair. One is in the National Portrait Gallery. It's the most famous portrait of, um, of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and he's wearing a suit of red satin and he's got a um, a, a high ruff and he has um, a bejeweled black hat with a scarlet plume on his head. Uh, he wears the letter George, which is the emblem of the uh, the Knights of the Garter. He wears it round his neck, which is suspended from an encrusted golden chain. It's, he, he looks like an extremely wealthy courtier. Now, what we know is that the portrait has been cut. So originally, that portrait would have been full length. Now, it's a man portrait to another one, which is sadly in very poor condition. It's in the Reading Museum. It's faded. Um, but And it's also been cut, almost certainly, though um, Elizabeth Goldring hasn't been able to look at it closely. So she can't be absolutely certain that it has. But it seems very likely from the positioning of the portrait that it was a matching pair to uh, the Dudley one. And they are in the same pose. Um, they're both turning slightly to the right. Um, both of them are leaning on a chair. So they do look as if they could have been, almost certainly they were, hanged together. Now, the other reason why we make this deduction is that in the inventory for Kenilworth in 1578, it describes the portraits of Dudley in those exactly as this NPG portrait is. And as for Elizabeth, it describes a doublet that Lester gave her as a gift. It's a white satin jewel encrusted doublet. And what is Elizabeth wearing in this Reading portrait? The same doublet. So again, we're putting things together. We can't dot the I's and cross the T's, but it very much looks as if this was a double portrait commissioned um, for Elizabeth's visit to Kenilworth in 1575. Do you think that um, it was painted from life from her? Because I know some of the portraits of royal portraits of the time, they didn't necessarily always pose for the portrait. So how do you think that would have happened? Do you think she posed for that, knowing that Lester was commissioning them and that they would be at Kenilworth? And what do you think might have been the story there? I think in this particular portrait, it is very unlikely that it was painted from life. I think there was a face pattern. It's not a dissimilar face from the Darnley portrait, which is also in the mid-1570s. So I would suggest that Elizabeth didn't know that this particular portrait was going to appear at Kenilworth at the time. And it makes it very different from the other pair of portraits. Now, the other pair of portraits, we don't actually have the finished articles. What there is in the British Museum today are chalk drawings um, as preliminary sketches for the two portraits. Now, it does look as if the painter who was Zucaro and, uh, and it, Italian painter who had come over to England at this time was commissioned by Dudley, but he painted the Queen from life. And given that he was um, a very um, 
well-esteemed portraitist, and uh, he was an Italian, it's quite likely that Elizabeth was either persuaded or, you know, entranced to have her portrait painted by this, you know, very high-quality artist. Mm. As I say, we don't have the finished piece of work, nor do we have the finished piece of work for the Dudley sketch, which they're a matching pair, the sketches. There's no question about that. Mm. But we do know that there was a painting uh, that was in the Duke of Sunderland's collection, which was destroyed in the Second World War. And we have a photograph of that, which is in the National Portrait Gallery. And that painting is really looks as if it's the cartoon, the sketch come to life. So we're pretty sure what it would have looked like. Oh, how wonderful. I didn't know about that at all. So that's fascinating. So we know that Dudley commissioned these and and obviously from my time at Kenilworth, I'm aware of the lengths that he went to, um, as I say, honour his queen and impress her. And I guess this was just part of all of that. Yes, um, it does seem that they were they were not exactly hidden, but they were behind curtains, so they weren't quite on show uh, in the space where they were displayed. And one of the reasons might be that in that space there were paintings of European rulers with their wives, and it would have been just a little bit too in your face <laughs> for Lester to have his portrait with Elizabeth mm. in that prominent position, in that kind of space. So Elizabeth Goldwing thinks, and I think she is utterly convincing, that this was behind a curtain. And perhaps it might have been that that um, Lester was trying to see how the ground lay. You know, how did he? How did Elizabeth respond to his uh, his overtures of mm. marriage? Uh, and if she had responded well, he would have drawn back the curtain. <laughs> she didn't respond well, so I suspect Elizabeth didn't even see them. No, because am I right in saying that one of the pageants that Dudley had put together had very strong overtures of a marriage proposal within it, and it got vetoed by Elizabeth, so it never actually got performed? So I think at some point he realised he may have just been pushing things a little bit too far. Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, some of it does come through and we can see that this is what is, seems to me, how I read what he's saying to Elizabeth is, look, either marry me or let me go. And if you let me go, let me go to the Netherlands and fight on behalf of the Protestant cause. And one of the portraits actually shows armour, armour by the side of Leicester. So he's shown as a potentially martial figure and it would fit with the pageant in that way too. Oh, that's, I mean, for me, that's just having been to Kenilworth and I hope that for those people listening to this, to the show today, having listened to the story as I wandered around Kenilworth, looking at the buildings and of course, Leicester's Tower and how he stopped the clocks for the period of time that Elizabeth was there. Having these paintings and the stories of these paintings really just rounds that off very nicely. And we do know they were hanging there because they are in the inventory of 1578 and it's very hard to believe that they weren't there in 1575. So I have to ask, um, do we know where these paintings were hung in Kenilworth? 
No, we don't, not for certain, or at least I don't know. And I, I don't remember reading that there was in the inventory a place. It it might be that, uh, but I just don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Shucks. <laughs> I love all those. I love all those little tiny details, and uh, I know people listening at home do too. So that's that's great. So we know you've said where these paintings are now. So um, are they viewable? Are they um, available to the public to see? Yes, there the, the, there is no problem about viewing them. First of all, the two prints are in the British Museum. I'm not sure they're on display, but they are in the print room. So you would need special permission to go and see them. There are a lot of them online in, in, in real, in colour, because there is some red chalk. So they're, they're very lifelike, uh, the online representations of the two sketches. Mm. Uh, the Dudley uh, painting, which you have to see live, is in the National Portrait Gallery. And uh, the Reading portrait, which quite honestly is in poor shape, uh, can be seen. I think you probably need to write and make sure that you can have entry. Mm. Uh, but it's in the Reading Museum. So most of these are accessible, which is great news for everyone. So that was really interesting. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into the those portraits and completing the picture of the 1575 progress for us. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Professor Sue Doran from the University of Oxford talking to us about a really historic pair of paintings associated with Elizabeth and Dudley. And that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. But before we go, I wanted to mention to you that I have very recently launched the Tudor Travel Show's patron programme. So this is for people who love the show and would like to support the podcast and help ensure that it goes from strength to strength in the future. As you're probably aware, there are a good deal of costs associated with creating a show like this, including uh, the hosting fees for Podbean, the travel expenses to get on site, and not to mention the time taken to edit the programme, which is not insignificant. And because I've started um, recording on site, on location, it seemed a good time to introduce the programme. Now, there are lots of different levels that you can support this show, beginning from just $1 a month. And there's a bumper range of rewards on offer, depending on which level of sponsorship you select. And they range from shout outs on the show to digital downloads to Tudor travel guide mini guides through to signed books, invitations to determine what we will look at, which property we will focus on in a future Tudor Travel Show show and even at the top tier level an invitation for you to join me on location at the recording of the Tudor Travel Show. So if you're interested why not hop over and have a look. All you need to do is go to the Tudor Travel Show homepage where you downloaded this podcast and click on the green become a patron button in the top right hand corner. It would be a huge thrill and an honour to have your support. So yes, that's really it for the month of August. 
I am shortly heading off down to Kent where I'll be doing some recording at Hever Castle and Pencer's Place. And in fact, it's going to be Hever that is going to be the subject of our next show in September. So I know that is an incredibly popular place and there'll be plenty of exploring and plenty of things to look forward to. So I will look forward to talking with you again in September. And until then... It's happy time travelling. Mm-hmm.